Dr. Sally Thompson is an eco-hydrologist and research academic, currently working as an associate professor at the University of Western Australia. Sally previously held the Claire and Sien Wen Shen Distinguished Research Chair position at the University of California, Berkeley, and held research positions at Princeton, Purdue, and Duke Universities. She was awarded a John Monash Scholarship in 2006. She has a PhD in environmental science. Sally's interests lie in unraveling the many roles that plants play in the water cycle and the connection between water and ecosystems. Her research focuses on vegetation as a major driver of the water balance. Dr. Sally Thompson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Justin. I must say you're the first eco-hydrologist I think I've ever spoken to. Are there many of you in Australia? There are. We are sitting here in a continent where water is the main limiting resource for life and where we also have some of the greatest biodiversity, particularly in our plants, outside of the tropical rainforests. So it might not be too surprising that we are also quite rich in people who study the connections between water and life. So how do you become an eco-hydrologist? You can come to this through quite a few different pathways, um, I guess focusing more on the water at the start or more on the life. Um, I myself am an engineer by training and within the disciplines of engineering is a area where we focus on water and that can take lots of different forms. So we might be thinking about how to treat our water so that we are safe when we drink it, how to dispose of our waste, but also how do we plan for and manage our water resources, which was the area that I was always most excited by. And when you live in a place like Western Australia, as I did at the time, you really have to think about the plants because about nine out of every 10 raindrops that land on the ground are going to not form our water resources. They're actually going to disappear back up to the atmosphere and most of them are going to do that through a plant. So if you really want to get a handle on your water resources, you need to think about this connection between life and how it's using water and then what's left over that we can make use of for human society. I've never quite thought of it like that. I'm, sh I'm sure most of us probably don't. You've had, Sally, an amazing academic career and you're currently as I said, at the University of Western Australia. Can you tell us about the work that you're currently doing? Here in Western Australia, since about the 1960s, we've seen our rainfall declining. And it's an interesting place from a water perspective, Western Australia, because it's one of the few places around the world where all of the climate change predictions about rainfall agree with each other, which is actually really unusual. A lot of our global models struggle to agree with each other about what direction rainfall is heading in. Uh, so they all agreed that it was going to become less frequent and we would have less of it. And on top of that, this prediction wasn't just being made for the future, it was something that was meant to be going on right now, and indeed it is. So we've really been confronted here in the southwest of 
of the continent with thinking very hard about how we live sustainably in a very dry area where the amount of water we have to play with is reducing and of course our population is growing so our demands are increasing. So there's, there's quite a long story here. When I was a kid here in Western Australia, every winter our creeks would flow in the hills, our beautiful dams would fill up, we'd all feel very happy because the dams would be full and the people of Perth would then drink the water from those dams for the coming year. But around about the year 2000, it became really apparent that the creeks weren't flowing anymore and the dams were not filling up anymore and that the city of Perth was facing a water crisis. And that was really just because we'd crossed a threshold. It's not that the rain had decreased so much, it's just that it had decreased enough that we could no longer make that runoff. There's these sort of step changes in these systems. Um, and so that has pushed the city of Perth to become really reliant on two different water sources. One is desalination, which is obviously climate proof, but takes an awful lot of energy to get salt out of water. So it's got its, its downs. But the other source has been groundwater. And we still rely on groundwater for about half of the drinking water for the city of Perth. For most of our horticulture, so if you like a tomato and some lettuce on your hamburger at your summer barbecue, you need that groundwater to grow those plants. Um, and it's actually what we mostly use for watering our public open spaces and our gardens around the city. The trouble is that those groundwater resources also depend upon rainfall to fill them up. And we are concerned that the same kind of step change that turned off our streams might start really reducing or even turn off the ability of rainfall to replenish that groundwater. So I've been spending the last few years manically, maniacally installing observatories around Perth um, and the sort of surrounding area to try to help us trace the fate of those raindrops that do get into the ground and understand how they're making it down to the groundwater and, and how that changes from year to year and depending on what we do with the land and how deep the water table is and all of those sorts of complications that can influence um, this really fundamental question of will we have enough water to drink as the climate keeps drying. Is it a source of frustration to you, Sally, when you hear people, mainly politicians perhaps, talking from a position of ignorance without a fundamental understanding of science about how the climate perhaps isn't changing, that it's all made up, that it's a myth? I don't think many people take that position anymore. Um, and I think there's been quite a lot of public opinion surveys that have been done in Australia to try to gauge that. And the tipping point really seems to have been um, the Black Summer bushfires when mm. I think the whole continent went, oh, hang on, this this does not look like anything we've seen before. And unfortunately, I get the sense that these big, scary changes, um, maybe mostly coming in the form of heat waves that are extreme or new fire events or ocean heat waves, I think we're just going to be crossing more and more of those records. You, you probably saw that yesterday. In yesterday, the day, I did. And then the subsequent day broke the record again. So we've, we've just had the two hottest days ever recorded, as far as we know. We're heading into uncharted territory and we're maybe getting there a bit sooner than we feared we would. So I, I don't think there's hesitation now about 
belief, but I think the magnitudes of the changes that need to be made are are terrifying and and I think that's where we see a lot of the uh, inertia is, you know, it's really attractive to keep exporting coal. We make a lot of money that way. Do we really have to change now or can we put it off? Um, I think they're really hard decisions and I guess actually I have a lot of sympathy for politicians making them. That can't be easy, you're right. Yeah, I think there's there's huge trade-offs involved and it's it's easy to be it's easy to prioritise one thing, but it's also really apparent that our quality of life is to a large part sustained by our exports. So, mm. yeah, I, d- I don't think it's easy. I, I guess what frustrates me is that we didn't take action 30 years ago because we knew this was coming. And so it's a lot of those frustrations are sort of bedded in the past now. What is it, Sally, that you love about the work that you do? I have a lot of things that I really love about my work. So it's not at all unusual for me to walk uh, onto campus here at UWA and do a little happy dance. (laughs) I'd like to see that. (laughs) Oh, uh, it's amazing. (laughs) I'm a phenomenal dancer. Um, But but really, I I do often have days where I just sort of giggle to myself and think, gee, this is amazing. I I really love what I do. Um, And a chunk of that is that the work itself means that I get to go play in the dirt and hammer things into the ground and hike around in the bush and that's work. So I shouldn't that say that. sounds like fun. I mean, it's not my average day at the office, but, but my work incorporates a good chunk of that. Um, I work with really fantastic people who are problem solvers, they're clever, and they're generally motivated by wanting to understand and protect and find solutions for our country and our landscape, um, which, you know, those are good people. They're not really profit motive type people. They are they are people who are working for a, a bigger goal. Um, I really enjoy the fact that I get to teach and that I get to engage with students. They are so rewarding and there's really not, nothing better than you know, listening to that ah oh, noise that people That's make. That's what it means. I get Finally, it now. yeah, yes. yeah. So every now and then as a teacher, you manage to provoke that noise and uh, that's <laughs> really rewarding. I'm sure there's a few other noises that are made in the classroom But I think the other thing that's really delightful about academic life um, is that you get to drive your own ship to a large extent. Um you know, I'm not working towards some third party's agenda. I'm usually in a position to collaborate with my funders and to work with them to decide collectively what we think is important to do. And then I get a lot of latitude about how I get to do that. Um, and that is really rewarding. Um, I guess it's also really nice to be able to have the diversity of things that you do get to work on in academia. Um, so. I don't think I have ADHD, but I think that, uh, <laughs> it plays into that tendency of enjoying something novel um, in, in your work. So you've worked and studied at institutions all over the world. In fact, you're away for a long time, only returning to Australia in 2019. So tell us about some of your favourite experiences from your time overseas? Yeah, this is a really difficult question to answer because as you as you say, there's a long period of time in there. So I think there's really good experiences that relate to sort of human experiences and people. And for example, while I was at Princeton, I 
got to work with the guy who really invented the field of ecohydrology, who was this beautiful man, uh, Ignacio Rodriguez Turba. Um, he's Venezuelan. He's just the most generous and joyful human being while at the same time being an utter genius. Mm. Um, so I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would, you know, get to meet Ignacio, let alone spend six months working together with him and being able to consider him a friend. Um, so I think a lot of my sort of human experiences have a flavour of that, of of these people in my discipline who I idolised or was awed by and who eventually became collaborators and really good friends. Um, and I think that's that's one of the delightful things about being an academic in the United States is that you do have access to the best people in the world mm, mm. Um, and that can be really delightful. Um, but, you know, we, we also had really exceptional experiences in terms of uh, fieldwork and international collaborations. Um, and I think you know, I, I was fortunate to be supported by a um, what's called a career grant from the United States National Science Foundation, um, which enabled me to do about six years of work that was based at Yosemite National Park, which is a pretty incredible place. That to would have been fantastic. Place. I've always it's wanted to go there. Yes, it's an exquisite area. It's really nature's playground. Um, we were working on a project that was a real good news story project because back in the 1960s, you, you may know that Yosemite is where the giant sequoia trees grow, so the biggest yes. trees in the world, just phenomenal giants. And um, nobody knew how you made a baby giant sequoia for a very long time. And in the 1960s, it became apparent that you actually needed a fire. These are trees, like many of our Australian trees, that depend upon fire to open up their seed cones and to spread their seed around. And there's these wonderful stories from the park biologists who would go out after a fire and they would say that the seed were thick on the ground like snow. Um, and this was really a confronting thing to learn that this iconic tree species needed fire because by this point there had been a policy in place in Yosemite but really right across the United States that was called fire exclusion. So you, you might also be familiar that they have these great big fire towers that they stick all through the wilderness and the mm. uh, lucky uh, quote-unquote lucky, uh, young people climb up there and spend a summer up there just scanning the horizon looking for fires and not seeing yeah. another human being. But the purpose of that was that you had to extinguish every fire that was spotted by 10 a.m. on the day that it had been spotted. This was the official national policy. And so they'd been busily taking fire away from these landscapes. And now suddenly scientists were saying, well, hang on, if you do that, you're not going to have any more of these, you know, wonderful tourist attraction trees that everybody's so proud of and excited by. And so the National Parks thought, well, maybe we need to start experimenting with bringing fire back. And in Yosemite, there is a river basin called the Illilouette Creek Basin that's entirely surrounded by rock. So if you did have a big fire in there, it couldn't spread. It's kind of like setting a fire in your bathtub. It's not got a great chance of escaping into the rest of the house. I've never tried doing that. Not recommending that. But, um, <laughs> if you had to, maybe that's where you do it. So yes. in the 1960s, they'd been letting fires burn naturally there, which meant it was one of the few places where we could try to understand how different would these forests be 
if we removed this fire exclusion policy, which was very much a sort of continent-wide experiment that was done without a whole lot of thought about the consequences. And what we found um, up there was just fantastic, that the landscape had been almost completely colonised by trees. So it was about 80% forest at the time they brought the fires back. Um, by the time we were working there, that had come down to about 60% forest cover. So we do reduce the amount of trees. But what that meant was that when the fires got in, they were burning like jigsaw puzzle pieces. So they'd burn up to where the last fire had been and they'd stop. And this basin was now yielding more water. So really quite large quantities of additional water were running off which was pretty exciting in a situation that California faces, which is you know, very much one of water scarcity and crisis. Uh, we were studying this um, basin throughout a really bad drought and we found almost no drought mortality there compared to other areas. So the trees seemed like they were a bit protected from the drought that was taking place. And this loss of forest, while that sounds bad, what it got replaced by were meadows, wetlands, shrublands, and this increased the biodiversity of the landscape. So you actually ended up with a, a real good news story where we had less risk of severe fire, we had more biodiversity, we yielded more water, and we had a more resilient forest. So just a really exciting and positive project to be able to work on at a time when we really do need some good news stories about some of these. I agree. I'm keen to know more about the John Monash Scholarship. It was obviously a few a few years ago now, back in 2006. Was that a great time in your life? Yeah, it really was. Um, I used my Monash Scholarship to go work at Duke University, which is where I studied my PhD. It enabled me to work with a wonderful guy called Gabby Katul, and Gabby was just the most generous and positive and brilliant mentor that you could really hope to have as a um, scientist who was starting out. And I was thinking also about the cohort of people that it enabled me to be a part of. And that first day of arriving at Duke and, and meeting the other new PhD students who were just these incredible people. You know, if they hadn't, or one of them ran her own NGO in Peru that was focused on saving sea turtles. Another guy had just come back to do his PhD, having spent the previous year rock climbing in the Himalayas. Other people had come straight from Peace Corps work in Tanzania or working for non-profits. They were just clever, passionate, accomplished people, but also very much people who were doing things, not just talking about things or thinking about things. Um, and, and that was really exciting. And it was, and I don't want to say that there aren't groups of people like that in Australia, because of course there are, but, but these were really quite exceptional people. And it was just sort of amazing to be among them. Um, I think what the other thing Amonish lets you do is to actually be very sort of selfish in a sense for a while because it gives you the freedom to focus on learning for yourself without needing to meet someone else's external agenda. So it meant that if I wanted to teach to get some teaching experience, I could, but I wasn't financially dependent on teaching to get myself through my PhD. Um, so I could take opportunities that came up and that really just meant that doors were easy to open. Where did your love of study and research come from? Mm, I have a very, very nerdy family. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So my father's a medical researcher and even though he's nominally retired, he uh, never stops flirting with, oh, maybe we could just run one more research trial. My mum would not describe herself as a nerd, but she is one of the few people out there who is both a qualified medical doctor and a PhD. Stop it. You are, you are in a family of a nerds. A very nerdy family, yes. <laughs> so I, I was probably very much marinating in this sort of stuff as a kid. My parents also sent me to a really amazing primary school, um, which was an independent school here in Perth called Quintilian. And this was a place that really embraced the idea that kids needed to be individuals and to learn at their own pace. And I think that experience um you know that meant that i was doing year four english classes when i was in year one because that was where the pace was at for me that really i think helped me become an independent learner and someone who was going to be interested intellectually um you know throughout my life uh mind you i did not plan on being a academic researcher i i took my monash and headed off to duke firmly telling everybody that i would be returning to australia as an engineering consultant where i'd come from um <laughs> and those plans got a bit too wild you never know where life's gonna take you sally mm, especially when uh people like the aforementioned gabby Katul bully you very hard into applying for academic jobs i bet now i'm going to presume you were a whiz in science class and got your head around osmosis pretty quickly uh yes and um, that's very relevant to what we were talking about before because we did use reverse osmosis for our desalination oh. so it's all coming together now your life has changed incredibly since you became a parent to your two boys who i understand are kids with special needs what are their conditions and diagnoses yeah so i'm a mum to two little boys um and both of those boys have autism spectrum disorder um and that's sort of the only thing that's going on with my youngest son but my oldest son also has adhd and also has a generalized anxiety disorder so quite a lot going on in his life you found supporting your children and balancing your career to be difficult so what do your experiences reveal about how families and children with disabilities or mental health conditions are being supported? It's been a very rocky past two years for our family um, because of this exact issue. And I think what we've learned is that the supports we have in place are well tailored for some kids with special needs. So my youngest son is, is, is a kid with special needs, but he is behaviourally easy. He's not defiant, he's not argumentative, he doesn't melt down. Um, he, he finds the predictability of school to be delightful and he's settled really well into a school setting with support from his teachers and from his health team. Um, but it's been a real contrast between his experience and the experience of my oldest son, whose uh, flavour, if you like, of autism is something that's called pathological demand avoidance. And this is a sort of emerging autism profile that is not recognised by everybody and doesn't really have a formal status. But what it looks like is that uh, the kid or the adult who experiences it um, will feel like everyday requests 
are very anxiety provoking demands. So I can say to my son, honey, can you please go brush your teeth? And for him, that need to now activate the parts of his brain that say, all right, let's get up, let's go brush our teeth, that's awful. That absolutely leaves him frozen with with anxiety and can be really, really hard for him to do. So he'll ignore that request and then you'll repeat it and he'll keep ignoring it and then you'll get up in his face and you're starting to get a bit aggressive or a bit frustrated about it and you'll be like, why aren't you brushing your teeth? And suddenly there will be this massive meltdown. And, and so these kids look completely irrational to people who are neurotypical because the everyday basic parts of life they're responding to with defiance or obstruction or just melting down at what seem like completely ordinary requests. And so behaviourally this is much more difficult and we've really experienced a, a, long, a long period of time of uh, the family basically being blamed for this, like your, your kid can't handle being told no, so clearly you've never said no to him, or your kid you know, won't do what he's told, so obviously you must be terrible parents. Um, so that's definitely an issue that's still out there is a tendency to be uh, blaming the family for the children's disability. I bet. Mm. And you can imagine how well this sort of a profile goes down in a school setting, which is very much about, you know, doing what you're told is sort of the number one thing you have to be able to do to survive in school. Very, very difficult for kids with this sort of autism profile. So what are the positives, if any, of having had to confront these challenges and support your family? Yeah, they, I mean, I've learned an awful lot. So I very much hope that going through the learning process that we've gone through, that I and my husband, who's also a university academic, will be in a position where we can work towards making tertiary education more inclusive and accessible for students with neurodiversity. Um, we know it's very much out there in the population. It's probably underdiagnosed, if anything. And and, you know, it, it confronts me to, to think about, well, what does it look like to write an assessment in an engineering class that's a fair way to assess somebody who's working with an ADHD brain, um, which is so good at divergent thinking and struggles so much with sort of focused and convergent thinking. So I think there's a lot to think about and learn about how to really capitalise on the strengths of people with all of these different kinds of brains um, and then I think the other thing that's been a positive or a silver lining is, you, you know, I, I can't travel, right? I can't go to a conference. I can't leave my kids at this point. Um, reasons we haven't gone into, but it's not something I can do. And on the one hand, that is undoubtedly career limiting. But on the other hand, had I been doing that travelling, I would have been conflicted about the fact that I was leaving my children and, and was not having that family time. And so in some ways that choice has been taken away from me, but in the positive, I am forced to, to spend that time with the family to focus on maybe less career and more my life outside my work. And... I don't know that's the choice I would have made, but I also think that there's, you know, the choice I would have made would have been conflicting and difficult and spending this time with these kids is is rewarding and makes me happy in ways that my work would not necessarily have done. 
Dr. Sally Thompson, PhD. Amazing to talk to you today. Thank you very much for your contribution and your insights and all the very best in the years ahead. Thank you for coming onto the show.